All right, you got your camera? You got a bag? You ready to go? Jump on in. We're heading down the road. My name's April, and I'm an award-winning landscape photographer and tour guide. I've been leading small group photo tours for over 20 years. For photographers, non-photographers, and anyone else that just likes to go for a great trip. So welcome to my podcast, Eyes for the Road. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you fine art photographer Tillman Crane. And I have a lot of questions to talk to him about. I'm sure he has a lot of information to share. Um, so we're just going to go ahead and get started. So thank you for joining me today, Tillman. My pleasure, April. So why don't you start, for those of us who may not be familiar, tell us a little bit about your journey to choosing the camera and photography as your artistic means of expression. Yeah. <laughs> you got hours or days. I know. Um, <laughs> Um, I started, I took some photography in college, but it wasn't my major. Uh, I was a history religion major, but I was paying my way to get through college by working in a college theater. And photography was neither history nor religion nor theater, so it was a good, good break from those intense activities. Um, and after graduation, my first wife and I moved on campus as dorm parents, and I was working on a master's degree in philosophy and uh, still working. The chaplain of the college had actually taught the photography classes that I took, and so I continued working with him. And the local newspaper approached him and asked him if he had any of their, if he had any students who were interested in working for them part-time. Hmm. He recommended that I... You know, he recommended me. I went in and interviewed, and as so often happens, they hired somebody else. Oh. Um, and after a couple of three months, they fired that person and called me up, and it happened to be at the end of the semester. So I said, yeah, I just need to take final exams, and I'll give it a whirl. Um, and so then I worked for uh, about eight or nine years in newspaper photography, mostly for the Daily Times in Maryville, Tennessee. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was actually hired to shoot color. We were one of the first newspapers to run color on a daily basis. This was in 78, mm -hmm. about four years before USA Today was running color every day. Right. So I was actually hired to, to be a color photographer. Which is interesting. Uh, and I, pardon? That's interesting considering, which we'll get into later, your work today. Yeah, yeah. Um. And I began going to workshops because I, I knew nothing about photojournalism. So I did a number of photojournalism workshops. And then I began doing other workshops in photography um, to just broaden my knowledge because I, I simply was in over my head, to, to say the least. Um, and, and the newspaper supported that um, they would send. They would pay for some. I would pay for some. I would take vacation time to go do workshops, and you know, it was it was a good, good, beneficial relationship for both of us. So I, I learned a lot. Uh, in in college, the uh, first photo class I took uh, was based on John Zarkowski's book, Looking at Photographs. Hmm. Um, and we thought it was a, an intense three week class that met eight hours a day for three weeks. Wow, uh, and we had to identify. Oh, I've forgotten whether it was seventy or eighty out of the one hundred images by name, uh, 
In other words, we looked at photographs. We spent a lot of time the first week looking at photographs, and then we actually had to pass a written exam uh, where we could identify, and I've forgotten the number, whether it was 50 or 80 or what seemed an extraordinary number of images. You know, we had to identify the photographer and the rough time period and, you know, maybe the title of the picture. Mm-hmm. So we were getting photo history without being told it was photo history. And once right. we had done that, then we could pick up a camera and begin making pictures. So we had this grounding in composition and design and photo history and all that stuff without being told that's what it was all about. Right. Uh, so, so we had a good sense of, of design and composition when we, when we began working. And they designed the class so that we actually, we just shot, we just made pictures. They actually hire, hired somebody to process the film and made contact sheets. And then we would edit them. Uh, and we ended up with a little exhibition at the end of the, you know, the time period, you know, just a pretty typical college experience. So, but what it, what that gave me was a good grounding in the history of photography and being a history major that, was just the way I approach things anyway. So it, it, it worked well for me. Right. Um, and long story short, um, going home in Christmas of 76, uh, I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and there was a Frederick Evans photography show. Uh, they had a small collection of his platinum prints in what then was the basement photo gallery. I think it was the Stieglitz Gallery in the basement of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And the only thing I had seen were pictures in books that were then right. slides that made of pictures in a book up on a screen. You know, And to see the actual prints was really pretty mind-blowing. Mm. Uh, and so when I got into photography seriously in the late 70s and early 80s, those images, those prints were always kind of in the back of my mind. So I'm shooting color pictures for the newspaper, but thinking about these beautiful images that I had seen of Frederick Evans' platinum prints um, kind of as I was starting. Um, and it, as things moved along and uh, my my first wife passed away unexpectedly, and and some things changed. So I was able to go to graduate school, um, and um, in graduate school I decided not to do journalism at all. I sold all of my thirty five millimeter gear, and I had been doing large format eight by ten color work since about eighty two, mm-hmm. um, and I was doing color and black and white with large format that was purely my work. It was work right. the newspaper was not interested in in any shape, form, or fashion. Hmm. So it became, that was my personal work. Um, and then when I went to graduate school, I said, I'm just going to do large format. And at the time, I thought I was going to do large format landscape work. Um, I was living here in Maine and uh, teaching at the Maine Photographic Workshops in their year-round program and commuting to Delaware for graduate school. Oh, wow. Um, and it was that commute that brought me into the train stations of 30th Street Station in Boston and Washington and New York. And so my graduate thesis ended up being on the train station of the northeast corridor of Amtrak. Um, and Amtrak gave me permission to go in and, and photograph in their train station, photograph the architecture. And I'm right. not sure that I could get that permission today, but 30 years ago, it was not much. You know, I got permission, got a letter of introduction from Amtrak. and never had any problems with it but i imagine today going in and setting up an 8x10 view camera and 
30th Street Station or in Union Station in Washington would not be a pleasant experience. Right. Um, so by then, by the, but when I graduated, I had remarried, and, and my wife and I were living in Maine, and I was teaching at the Maine Photographic Workshops and taught there. And so my shift of my work had shifted to black and white. I was doing silver. I had not done any platinum printing at that time uh, in 1990. But there was introduced to platinum printing by a man by the name of Rob Steinberg. He had a small company called the Palladio Company mm-hmm. that made machine-coated platinum paper, which was the same sort of paper Frederick Evans had used 100 years earlier. He didn't hand coat his paper. He went to the store and bought Kodak or Ilford or Agfa. Right. They all made platinum papers of one type or another. And, and, and so he taught me to platinum print, and then I did some things for his company, and I was essentially paid in platinum paper. So that got me started in 1990 after, or, yeah, after I graduated from graduate school and returned to Maine. So now I'm shooting... 8 by 10 black and white, making silver prints, as well as beginning to make platinum prints, um, and, and living the life of a, a teacher at the workshops and being in a really heady environment um, at the main photogra- photographic workshops. Yeah, you've got a big uh, workshop schedule, actually. Pardon? I think you have a busy workshop schedule, actually. Well, I, I certainly, I do, I have, I do now. Then I was teaching quarter workshops, so I was teaching 12 weeks a year during the summer, and then I was teaching during their break, they at that time ran the University of Maine mm. two-year program in photography, and they had their own, what they called their resident program, so, so I was teaching very full-time, um, and in 96, my wife and I decided to leave Maine, and we went to Utah, and I started a program at a private high school, um, which was a terrific experience, um, but I was not a high school teacher. Um, there were great things about it, but there were things that just I didn't, didn't suit me, and I didn't suit. So after five years, we left and returned to Maine and started our own workshop business, and so now we run our own photographic workshops. Um, and I had been just pursuing my career as a fine artist. Um, and since we returned here in 2001, I've essentially done nothing but make platinum prints, um, and shoot large formats. Um, and I worked with started working with an eight by 10 in 1982. And in the late 90s, picked up a 12 by 20 and also a five by seven. And then things change and evolve. And now I'm working with an 8x10, a 5x7 occasionally, and a 5x12, the panoramic format camera. Oh, nice. Excuse me. And those were all large negatives so that I could make direct contact prints. And I kept my eye on the digital world starting in 98, I think, when I taught a digital negative class to high school students on making digital negatives for alternative process using Dan Burkholder's is either 98 or 99, mm-hmm. maybe 2000. Anyway, um, so I knew the digital negatives were out there, but it wasn't something I was particularly interested in at the time because I was shooting large negatives to make 8x10 prints and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and But my first national exhibition was at Vision Gallery in San Francisco in 93 or 4. Uh, and those were 1620 platinum prints, but using film, I had made enlarged negatives with film. 
So, you know, I've kind of been dancing in for original size negatives and making them making in large negatives to make larger prints. Right. And as the digital printers got better, as the digital materials got better, about 2006, 7, 8, I began to think, okay, well, maybe because the material, the film I'd been using to make in large negatives with had gone, had, they'd quit making it in 97. So for 10 years, I didn't make any large negatives. Oh. Uh, and by, two, by 2007 and 8, it was getting good enough, so I went and learned the digital negative process from a friend of mine. Uh, and so now I had to scan my large negatives and then work on them in Photoshop to make the negatives and could all of a sudden go back to now making 16 by 20 platinum prints right. uh, again or 8 by 20 platinum prints. So I'm doing that and I, I'm still keeping my, I'm having students bring digital cameras and their cameras are getting better, their files are getting bigger and uh, when I saw the mirrorless digital cameras, particularly the Fuji mirrorless cameras come out, uh, because of the, the live view on the rear screen was just an integral part of it, uh, now I could put that on a tripod and look, by, look at the screen and treat it just like a view camera, uh, pretty much. So I began to incorporate digital cameras into my work. So now I am bilingual. <laughs> I still shoot film, I still shoot 8x10, I still shoot 5x12, but when I have to get on a plane and go to Japan or go to China or someplace like that where I can't take my large cameras, I know I can take my two Fuji cameras and a tripod, mm-hmm. treat it like a view camera, and come back and make very lovely large platinum prints from the digital files. So, you know, over the 30 years I've gone from color, 8 by 10 color, 35 and 8 by 10 to back to shooting with a handheld camera, but usually either on a monopod or a tripod mm-hmm. or still shooting black and white film. I still shoot FB4 plus and then making digital negatives, scanning the negatives, working on them in Lightroom, Photoshop, and then making digital negatives to make my, my platinum prints. I still just make prints as platinum prints. Right. So, so that's the long and short of that. <laughs> so it, you focus, though, primarily on black and white images, correct? Because of the way yeah. you like to output them on the on the printing end. Sure, sure. Uh, I, yeah, I shoot the, the the digital camera record. I shoot in RAW, so it's capturing everything, and then I convert it in Lightroom and Photoshop. But I'm my when I'm standing in a situation, looking at a scene. My intention, if it moves me to make a photograph, is it is going to be a platinum print. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm seeing it that way. Do students, when they take your workshops, do they photograph in color? Or it's pretty much... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, this is my work. This is not what I... Necess- you know, you don't have to be a large format starter. For You don't have to do black and white. To, to take my workshops. My workshops are about seeing, about experiencing a place and bringing what seeing and relating what you feel in that location to how you see and work. So, no, absolutely. In fact, most, most of my students don't do black and white, although some will do color in black and white. The beauty of the digital world is the same file can be rendered either way. Right. Um, but, no, no, you, by no means do you have to to, to shoot black and white or shoot film, uh, 
And for a period from about 2010 to 2015, almost everybody was shooting digital. Although I'm seeing more people come back in with film now. I'm seeing people carrying film cameras, particularly medium format cameras and their digital cameras. Uh, or occasionally a large format. I'm seeing four by fives come back into class again, along with a digital camera. Right. So I'm, I'm delighted to see people bringing film cameras back into the workshops, uh, but they're by no means necessary um, to to the to the workshop. Right. So how large? How many people do you usually take on your? On your workshops? Uh, my classes range in size from five and six to the maximum is 15. Mm-hmm. Um, I do a workshop out in North Dakota on abandoned farms. And we, we photograph an abandoned, well, empty farm houses and barns and schools and churches. Um, and we've got about 25 locations. So 15 people in that class, you know, you can work all day long and never see but one or two other people. So, um, depends on the location, um, and that's the accessibility of the location, essentially. Mm-hmm. But generally, no larger than fifteen, and, and as a rule, between six and ten. Yeah, that's a nice size. So, what's a typical day like in one of your workshops? Uh, it it really varies according to to where we are. Um, and what kind of access, like in the Olson House workshop that's coming up, we will only have access to the house two mornings. And I found some other locations for us to to be able to get in. But again, so the Olson House will work in two mornings, and then we will probably do some critiques or reviews in the afternoon and then go somewhere else in the evening. And it, Or sometimes the North Dakota workshop, which is coming up in a week or so, they will be out from 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning till 8.30 or 8, 7.30, 8 o'clock at night, and then we will do critiques or reviews uh, in the evening. And I'm always available for individual critiques. Um, in my workshops, there are, I like to say, three different ways to approach critiques. One is you can bring in work. What I'll do is say, okay, everybody bring five images from today. And I don't expect them to be polished, you know, just the five best that you want to talk about. And it's a real quick edit. It forces people to go through and quickly edit in an hour or so to download and quickly edit and then pull five or maybe ten images off. And then we will plug in the computer in in North Dakota. We're sitting in the bar Uh and we've got the big flat screen. We're in a side room at the bar and we've got a flat screen TV. So people are eating and we can have dinner and look at work and talk about what's going on. Right. Uh, and, you know, okay, this is what you saw. Do you want to do this, that, or the other, or, or suggestions, or uh, that sort of thing. Um, the second option is I have some people who like who don't like to show work prints or work in, you know, images in process. So they'll bring prints. They'll bring prints, and they'll be from, the, from a previous workshop or from a project they've been working on. And so rather than spending an hour in one night, we'll take some time every night and look. So if they bring 20 prints, we'll look at five prints a night um, and and talk about how they're going and, and what they're doing and that sort of thing. And then the third way is there are occasionally some people who are either new to photography workshops or uncomfortable sharing the work. 
they don't have to share work. I don't, you know, it's not something you have to do. This is not school that you have to produce X number of images for a grade. Right. We're all doing photography because we love it and because we have something to say with it and we want to share that or not with other people. Um, and so you can choose not to, to show anything, but I do ask that you come and give your feedback to others. Right. Um, you know, and, and one thing people know that if they've had a workshop with me more than once, they know if, if somebody says, I like it, the immediate question is going to be why? And then that allows us to talk about, well, gee, I like the use of color or I like the vantage point or, you know, it makes me feel this, that, or the other. And, and so what my critiques try to get for people is feedback so that they know whether they're getting their point across, whether their images are saying what they want them to say. You know, if you're in a, mm-hmm. in a particular place and you feel abandoned and lonely and your images are saying, gee, that makes me feel happy and gay, then that tells me I need to rethink about how am I expressing, yeah, how am I visualizing this, that, or the other thing. Um, so it's not like a college or a graduate school critique where our desire, our desire is to destroy your ego and rebuild you in our own mold. My goal in a workshop is to have you be in a location, have you experience the location, and then make the images that you need to make mm-hmm. the way you want to make them. Not black and white, not large format, not on a tripod like I do. Uh, you make the images that work for you. Um, a, a story from an earlier Olsen House workshop, for example, and, and early on, and, and usually working in and around buildings, I will encourage people to use tripods. That's just who I am. I'm a tripod guy. Um, I don't require it, but I suggest, okay, this is a building. Your exposures are going to be long, so let's try using a tripod. And I had a lovely woman in the class who was, said, Tillman, I just can't work with a tripod. And I said, well, give it a day or so. Let's try. Mm-hmm. And she really struggled and made some horrible images the first two days that she showed. And then she said, do you want to see what I did without a tripod? <laughs> and I said, sure. Yeah. And they were phenomenal images. So I said, do me a favor. Don't ever touch a tripod again. Make your images. They were different from my images they could be, but they were wonderful. They had a a mystery to them that I couldn't create if you had paid me. Wow. So I have learned from students to let them follow their own vision. Um, So I'm not looking for people to work the way I work. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking for them to experience the location and tell their own stories about the location. Excellent. So that brings me to my next question. Is it challenging as a workshop leader uh, for you personally to return to locations that you may have photographed many times before? Um, it forces me to see deeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been working at the Olsen House for 20 years. I started photographing there in 1991. 25 years, geez, longer than I thought. Um, and I've been there, I don't know how many times as a visitor and I don't know how many times as a photographer, but in that, I never fail to see something different. And when I look at other people's work, I, somebody almost always shows me something that, that I didn't see, um, in the North Dakota workshop where I've been doing that for 
nine or ten years now. Um, there are, and in any workshop, there are kind of certain classic images that you can count on. This is a great image. I don't care who makes it. You know, you see it, you recognize it, you make the image. It's almost like it's in our un collective unconscious. Right. And you expect those, and you hope for those. But then it's the one that they go, gee, I don't know whether this works or not, and it just knocks your socks off, and you go, wow, never saw that. Um, so I always find something new. I don't, oftentimes, the first time in some place, I will make more, more images, and then more times I look longer and make fewer images, but hopefully they add to the body of work that I've done before. Um, so, no, I love going back and back to, to a location. Uh, that is, for me, the ideal situation mm -hmm. is to return to a place time and time again and see it at different times of light, different times of day, different light, and I'm a different person every time I go um, and trying to tap into who I am and how I'm relating to that space at this point in time. What is it teaching me about myself? Um, so it, it rarely... And, I mean, there are times like maybe I'll take a period of time off and not go back for a couple of years or something like that. Um, so, but I almost always find something. New. The Orkney Islands I've been to, I think I figured out I've spent over 40 weeks there in the last 18 years. Oh and I still God. find new things there. Every time I take a workshop group or every time I go for myself, even though I've done two books that include images from the Orkneys. So, so no, I don't get bored at all. I don't go to places, I don't take workshops to places where I get bored. Right. I'll put it that way. So what originally drew you to the Olson house? How did that? Uh, well, one, living in Maine, you obviously, you, you know, Andrew Wyeth and his work is, again, in the collective unconscious. It, it's there. It permeates everything. Um, and I knew people at the Farnsworth and they actually needed some postcard pictures. And so I agreed to shoot some color postcards, some color four by five transparencies for them so that they could use postcards and that they gave me access to it one the first winter they owned it. So one winter I essentially had the key and could go in anytime I wanted and photographed. And then over the years, I've known various docents or curators who, who've run the place and they've let me come in. You know, a good friend of mine was a docent and he would be willing to stay an hour after they were supposed to close and, okay. and let me photograph. Um, and, and that's, you know, that sort of thing. So, and then around, I can't remember, 2007, 8, maybe 9, we did a series of workshops there where we would photograph in the morning from from 7 to 11, they were open 11 to 4, so we'd photograph 11 to 7 and 4 to 6. Mm -hmm. So in the middle of the day, we would then have our critiques. Um, and they're, they've now cut down access to it pretty much, and this is the first workshop that's been done in the Olsen House in four or five years. They still will let people go through with cameras when they're open to the public, but no tripods, no monopods. Um, and it, it, they, they run into the typical thing that most museums do short, you know, how do you ask somebody to stay an extra two hours right. so some photographer can go in and 
make some photographs when, you know, they've got a life, you know, the, the people, the, and so they've shifted from, from volunteer staff to paid staff and become a more professional museum. And it, it's certainly the best thing for the, for the house and for the museum and, and for everything. It just, you know, makes it a little harder to get into, which makes this, this workshop on Andrew Wyeth's 100th birthday really, really special. Yeah, it does. What an opportunity. Yeah. So what do you feel you... Uh, when I, go ahead, I'm sorry. Pardon? No, go ahead. I was going to say, when the first time I went and photographed in there, it was completely empty. Christina and Alvaro had died. One died in December of 69 and the other in January of 70, I think. Yeah. They died a month apart, but different. Yeah, I think it's 69 and 70. And various people owned the house for the next 20 years. Um, and I'm not sure what went on, who did what during that 20 year period, but in about 1990 or 91, John Scully bought the house and some of the prop, all the property and gave the house and the cemetery and some of the land to the Farnsworth museum. So, so they could protect it. So when I went in, in, November of 91, 90 or 91, they had just had, they had sold everything that was in there and there were still tags hanging on picture hooks saying, you know, what had been there and it was completely empty. And over the years, they've been able to bring back, they brought back Christina's crib. They brought back the stove that was in the, in the house when Christina was alive. Um, and they brought back some other artifacts that, that are, original to the house. Oh, wonderful. Um, so it's, it's been interesting for me to, you know, pictures I could make 25, 25, 27 years ago, I can't make anymore because the stove's in the way or, you know, something else is, mm-hmm. is going on. Um, and, and, you know, hats off to the Farnsworth. They have done a terrific job on keeping this, this house, Upright, you know. There's nothing harder than keeping something in what's called an arrested state of decay. Right. You know, everybody wants to see it the way it was when Andrew painted it. Well, he painted it over 30 years. Yeah. And with rags in the window, and you know, you got to put windows in. You got to put fire suppression in. You got to put electricity. You got to put a toilet in it. Right. You know, for the visitors. So, you know, I, I have a profound respect for the Farnsworth and and what they're doing, trying to keep this this building vital so do you remember your experience the first time you went in what it felt like or it was eerie and cold (laughs) there was no heat um and it was truly eerie the windows rattled when the wind blew and maine in november december january february is cold um and so it was almost like christina's icy breath was on my neck um, but it, it was, it was eerie. Um, and you know, more than one time I left earlier than I had originally planned to leave, just feeling, uh, I think it's time for me to leave. Okay. <laughs> and I would take off. Interesting. Um, yeah. so if you believe in the spirit of places, then there was certainly something going on there. I, th- I think I think I do sense that with the number of photographers and painters and creatives that continue to seek 
seek it out to visit. Yeah. Well, it's it's a great it's a great place to photograph because it's large windows and small rooms. And up on the third floor, it's really unique because in the afternoon, the floors are, are polished. They're wood, and, and I don't know whether they actually put polish on them or just over the years they've gotten kind of polished from wear and tear. Mm -hmm. But I've had students photographing up on that third floor, and they'll put an image up, and they'll go, there's something weird about this, but I don't know what it is. And then certain times in the afternoon, the sun comes in the window, big window, small room, bounces off the floor, and the shadow of the shelf is above the shelf because the light source becomes the floor. Oh. And in our universe that you and I are living in right now, shadows fall down. Right. They don't fall up. So until you make that conscious recognition of, oh, the shadow is actually above the shelf. That's what's weird. And it's, it's not a hard black shadow, but it's just clear that the light's reflecting off the floor. And so you've got this wonderful building that faces kind of southeast, I think. Mm -hmm. So you've got great morning light, great afternoon light, big windows, small rooms. So you can, you can do wonderful portraits in there. You can do great still lifes in there. You can, you can, uh, do the architecture itself. So it's, it's a terrific studio in many ways. It just all kinds of different forms of whatever you bring to it. And the layers of paint over the years, the wallpaper in Christina's bedroom, they've kept parts of the wallpaper. So you've got layer on layer of wallpaper. So you're kind of looking back through history as you, as you look at that. Wonderful. Wow. Um, so what continues to draw you to abandoned places? Well, starting in the Olson House. Uh, I mean, again, my graduate thesis, uh, my emphasis around 1990 really switched from the landscape to the built environment, to what we as humans build. And so I photographed train stations and uh, seeing Frederick Evans' work in the cathedrals uh, moved me to try to go to England and Scotland and photograph the cathedrals, of, certainly of Scotland. And the standing stones there, the work of Paul Caponegro, they're the built. And then working in the Olsen house, it, it, you know, that everybody could make such different images. You know, if you had 10 students in there, um, they would come out with completely different images. Some similar to be sure, but, you know, if you spend a week in there, everybody's going to have a different take on it. Um, and a friend of mine lives in North Dakota and says, you know, People out here, you know, 100 years ago, 130 years ago, they were farming 160 or 320 acres, and they had a small house, and now they're farming square miles, and Granny's house is still sitting there. Why don't you come out and photograph these empty houses? Oh, wow. So the first year, I invited some friends who had done the Olson House Workshop to go out with me, and then North Dakota became a very rich environment for Again, everybody bring their own story, finding their own story um, in that location. And it, it's amazing how people, I've had, one, I've had students go there and say, I'm never coming back again. Really? And the next year when it's signed up, they're the first person to sign up. They go, well, there was something in my pictures that I can't find anywhere else, so I'm going back. So <laughs> it's, it, it's not uncommon to have people, well, in the workshop coming up in about 10 days, so I've got, 12 people and six have been there before some of them several times and okay. six have never been there. 
So they like this idea of going back and relooking, and you look at the images you made and go, oh, okay, well, I should have been a little bit to the left, or I needed to be there in the morning, not the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And these buildings change because there's nobody protecting them. Right. Uh, they're just falling down on their own, and, and the farmers take them down. Sometimes they just become too decrepit, they become dangerous, so they take them down. Or in this past spring, they had some tornado-like winds go through, and at least one just collapsed on its own oh. in one of my favorite buildings out there, and oh. it was it literally just collapsed. Oh. <laughs> it gave up the ghost. Right, just gone. Um, so every time you go, it's a different different set of houses, different environment. And we try to do it different times of the, the spring or summer. Sometimes we do it in May. This time we're doing it in August. Next year we're going to do it over July 4th. Mm. Um, so we so we get the you know these these buildings surrounded by beautiful fields right. in the summer, canola or sunflower or wheat or corn or whatever they're whatever they're growing, and and the people out there are very you know we've done excuse me two exhibitions out there of work that has been created there one at Minot State University and then we did one in the local prairie, I think it's the Prairie Village Museum there in Rugby. And we had a great reception. People came. They loved it. We would hear stories about, oh, that was my grandmother's house. We used to go out there and, you know, I spent my summers there or my mom grew up in that house. And, you know, now the farmers live in town mm-hmm. and they drive out and they, you know, their row, their row will be two miles long. They'll turn, you know, they're, they're, they're plowing and planting square miles. Wow. Um, and, They've got trucks and big tractors, so they don't have to live right next to where they're working. Some people still do. Some people, you know, have lived on the same plot and built new houses and, you know, to- taken down old houses. And we all want the modern conveniences and Internet and all that kind of stuff. So they're right there with us. And, and they've been very welcoming and very friendly and curious. Just, you know, why are you coming from all over the country to photograph these old buildings? Because well, right. we don't have them anymore anywhere else. Right. What do you think really sets an image apart? What makes an image memorable? Um, well, there's no formula. Um, sometimes it's the light. Sometimes it's the subject. Uh, sometimes it's the color. Uh, but it's amazing that when I'm looking at work and one will come up, I don't have to say anything. It's just, damn, that's it. There's mm-hmm. nothing else I can say. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, there's no formula. I, I talk about composition, design, and whatever rules of composition you want to come up with and do this or don't do that. Or, or like the woman who said, you know, I said, use a tripod inside. And she'd make great images, not with a tripod. So there is no one thing, but it's, when it, when it's right, it's obvious, you know, it is right there. It is dead obvious. You know, it, it does what I call rings the bell. You know, mm-hmm. it's just boom. Um, and the rest, we talk about how to make them be that image that rings the bell, so to speak. You know, that just kind of sums it up. And um, for me, I know with film, I'm lucky if it's 1% of what I shoot. And with digital, it's one-tenth or one-hundredth of one percent. Um, you know, and it takes a lot of editing, a lot of searching, 
Um, and, you know, Ansel Adams once said that if you make one good picture a year, it's been a good year. Mm-hmm. And that this means making hundreds, if not thousands of photographs in a year to get that one. But if you have a 40-year career as a photographer, even as a hobbyist, that's a heck of a portfolio. Yeah, that's you know. True. So, um, there is no one thing, but boy, when I see it, I know it. And I think most people do. I, I think if, if people have to be told, this is a great picture because of this, this, and this, it's not a great picture. So what has kept you kind of out of the color world, so to speak? I fell in love with those platinum prints of Frederick <laughs> Evans in 1976. And that I still love the platinum look. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it sings. When it's right, I look at it and go, that's the language I want. That's the visual language I want my images to speak. Um. So it, 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 it's just that simple. It feels right for my work. Um, I see, you know, when I load my digital files, obviously they come in as color. Um, but I just know they're going to black and white and then to the warm, beautiful tones of platinum. It's just the way I see it. Mm-hmm. I even have on my digital cameras, I even have the monitor turned to black and white. So it shows me black and white what it's going to look like, which is really nice. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. It is. It's great. The, the Fujis are great little cameras. Uh, they, they do pretty amazing things. And they're simple. They work well. They're beautiful cameras. I, you know, I, I just put it at that. I, if I say something, it'll make it, I can say it wrong, but. They remind me of the cameras I used when I was a photojournalist. They've got weight, they've got heft, they've got all the digital information, all the computer they need in them, but I can work intuitively with them. And so they're super. That's nice. So that that brings me to my question uh, on the Fuji cameras. what, Mm -hmm. uh, What models are they or what lenses do you prefer to use with those? For okay, I've got the food. I I got two Fuji X Pro twos, mm-hmm. X Pro ones when I when I when they first came out. Because I got one because it reminded me of the Leicas I used as a photojournalist. Liked it so much, I bought a second, and I almost wore them out. And then when the X Pro two came out, I bought that immediately. And then the X-T2 came out. So I've got an X-T2 and an X-Pro2. Okay. I have primarily prime lenses, 14, 23, 35, 60. And then I do have one zoom. I think it's a 55 to 200. And then I have two soft focus lenses that I use with it because I do a lot of soft focus work with my view cameras. Um, that's the other aspect I got into about 15 or 20 years ago with some soft focus work. Look, Frederick Evans was a pictorialist. So, mm-hmm. you know, I looked at his work and it was obviously influenced that way. Um, so I've got a Pentax soft focus lens that was designed actually for, um, film cameras back, well, probably came out in the seventies or eighties. And then I've got the lens baby, um, what is it called? It's the new lens, the lens baby velvet 
56, their soft focus lens. Okay. Um, It's relatively new to me, so I don't know how it's going to work, but every soft focus lens, I've got probably half a dozen large format soft focus lenses, and each one has a different characteristic and a different look. Interesting. And I'm sure these two soft focus lenses are going to be have a different look and feel. So when you're thinking about you, I noticed you put together like a series of photographs each year, kind of like your own portfolio, your own project. Um, mm-hmm. What determines, you know, what, where that's going to go? Is it something you spend a lot of time contemplating or where does that um, come from? So to speak. Well, it, it usually I've done four books, a fifth one, fifth book has been published in China that's a collection of work. But each of the, the first book structure was kind of a greatest hits from 25 years of working mm-hmm. um, sort of book. The next three, Touchstones, Odinstone, and A Walk Along the Jordan, were more essay-like. And usually... Scotland pulled me in. I went over and started making pictures with no intent of a book or an essay necessarily, but when I began to lay them out, I began to realize there was a a sequence to them. Right. So I went back deliberately seeking to fill out those sequences, to fill out the roundness of that story. Right. And then so that was touchstones, and in that there were images. I realized I had a lot of images from Orkney that didn't fit in that sequence. So I use those images to, to go back and to do a book just on the Orkney Islands called that eventually was called Odinstone. Um, on my website, I have various portfolios that often will relate to places where I do a workshop, like North Dakota or Montana, where I've done workshops. Um, one, so that other people can see, gee, why would I go to North Dakota? Well, here's a portfolio of work I have created there. Right. Um, and so when, when I go to put it in a, in book form or published form, uh, I'm always looking for what I call the lead or the signature image. The one image is going to encapsulate the way the whole book is going to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I come, then a title, or sometimes I'll come up with a title and then some images will come to it. But often if I have a title and a first and last image, then what goes in between really is pretty logical because there's a flow, there's an ebb and flow, there's a story that's being told through that. Um, so, you know, images for the website are often kind of the greatest hits from this year of, of that place, but if it's going to be published in a book or something like that, then I tend to work more essay form. Right. Um, more More expanded and I'll always go back and see what I, you know, I lay the work out, I look at it. My wife is a great editor, so we'll work together. And what's missing, because as a photographer, I know what went into each image and what's kind of the background of each one. But she said, well, wait a minute, how do you get from here to here? Mm-hmm. And I realized I've got to go back and make the images that makes that transition, that explains what's going on, um, and that sort of thing. So it the books do have a narrative to them. The last three books in particular have a narrative to them um, that I hope the viewer can follow. 
Yeah, I think so. So tell me a little bit about the Erie Canal. <laughs> I don't know much Again. about it. And they kind of fall, you know, when you look at the other, you know, the other places, abandoned structures, I mean, the Erie Canal kind of sticks out as kind of the, the, the one that kind of, it doesn't make sense to me, I guess. I don't know. Well, again, my love of history. Um, and um, I was traveling along upstate New York along I-90 and was seeing Erie Canal Heritage Corridor and had a friend who lived at the Western Inn. Uh, and so I stopped in his hometown of Lockport and saw these really pretty amazing locks that were the height of technology in 1920. Mm-hmm. But also scattered along our original 1820, 1825, 1840, 1860, even 1880 traces of the canal. So there is evidence, there is this abandoned, this old okay. canal that was dug by hand in 1825 and then pulled by horses and, and mules and then steam power came up and moved from a hand-dug 40-foot-wide, 4-foot-deep canal to a larger canal that steam-driven or, or diesel now diesel-driven ships could navigate and they could use the rivers rather than having to dig the canal. So it still ties into that, that mm-hmm. history. Yeah. And the history was really what I was all about. Uh, and so it, it ties into that piece of history and it's 325 miles and we've been working with the Erie Canal. This is the bicentennial of the of the beginning. The first spade of the Erie Canal was dug July 4, 1817. Oh, wow. So this is the bicentennial year Yeah. for the beginning of the Erie Canal. And the Erie Canal literally opened the upper Midwest. Upstate New York was, was wilderness and they, you know, a few towns and they dug this canal. And millions of people flowed west, got on the Great Lakes, got on ships, ended up in Chicago and North Dakota and Oregon, you know, just right. moved westward. Um, so it's, it's really a key piece in our history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I look for what's going on. In, I mean, and currently, the Canal Corporation is keeping these 100-year-old locks. They, the canal was rebuilt in the early 20th century and reopened in 1917. And they are keeping these 100-year-old locks in pristine working condition. And the lock masters are so proud oh. of their locks and the brass things that they use, the electrical boxes, which are the height of 1920 electric, elect, uh, you know, electrical engineering. Right. Today it's totally obsolete, but they keep it working anyway. And they have these wonderful um, engines and... Um, generators and all sorts of things. So that, you know, again, it, it just speaks to my heart and my love of history. And the Canal Corporation has given us permission. We have access to all of the locks and all of the lock houses and mm. the lock masters. When we come in with a workshop, they know we're, we're really interested in what they're doing. So we get to, right. to look and see and photograph and spend time. So some people go and make portraits and some people do Art, uh, textural studies, and some people do all sorts of things. And we incorporate, you know, if there are a couple of places, there are churches that were there when the canal was built, and sometimes the historical society will let us into these 200-year-old churches and photograph those spaces. So we get a mix, and sometimes it's landscape. There are places where there are the original 1825 canal, 
and it's just a neat landscape picture. Um, so we're we're doing portraits and landscapes and still lifes in the in the powerhouses. So all the genre of photography can be found there. Um, and uh, this year we're in the lift bridge. We're doing a section we've not done before. Oh wow! These great lift bridges that literally the road lifts up when a boat goes under. Hmm. Uh, and, and they're only on the western end of the canal. Uh, there are about, oh, I want to say, eight or ten of them. And, you know, we'll photograph all of them, and some of them are in the middle of nowhere. Some of them are in the middle of towns. Um, and any time a boat can go through there, they just radio, say, you know, this is such and such, I'm coming up. The lock master will say, okay, wait two minutes, or I'll have the bridge up when I see you come around the bend, and traffic stops, clang, 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 the bridge goes up. Boat goes under, clang, 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 the bridge goes back down. Fascinating. Uh, and there are these towns built around these around the canal. Yeah, it's an very area. Cool. Yeah, it's an area I had not visited. So it's, it sounds mm -hmm. actually very fascinating. It is. And, and, you know, upstate New York is beautiful. And the people are friendly. Um, and like I say, because the Canal Corporation is working with us, um, you know, it's a great opportunity. Dennis and I, the co-leader of the workshop, have a 95 print exhibition in Lockport on the Erie Canal right now, and we hope over the next seven or eight years. Uh, they began digging in 1817. They officially opened it in 1825. So there's a, what, seven, eight-year period where they built it. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're hoping that we'll get more exhibits and more people become interested in it. Um, and we'd love to do a book on it because we've got old parts, you know, we've got images from the original part of the canal to the modern canal to everything else in between that are visually good images, not just because it's a picture of the Erie Canal, but it's the neat stuff, the interesting light, the early morning, the late evening, uh, sunrise, all of that sort of stuff that makes good photographs. So it's still about that spirit of structure. I mean, my work really is about the spirit of structure. Yeah, that really does sum up pretty much all of your work, as you've just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call it. That's what we call the workshop series. We do spirit instruction. Great, wonderful. So, one last question. I know I've kept you for a little while, but you've had such great information. Um, are there any? Um, is there any advice you'd give to anyone looking to take one of your workshops? Is there any prerequisites they need to have under their belt? No, no, everyone is welcome. They do need to know how to use their camera and how to get images out of the camera and into their laptop. You know, just pretty mm -hmm. basic stuff. Right. Uh, but no, I welcome all levels uh, because inevitably the person that's first coming to a workshop is going to ask a question that nobody else has thought of and go, damn, <laughs> <laughs> or they will see something new. And the students in the workshop are often very friendly, and I am not a digital whiz. Oftentimes people in the workshop know more about digital than I do. And, you know, they'll get off on a corner and be talking digital stuff, and then somebody new to the workshop says, well, how do you do Oh, well, come here, let me show you. This, this is how you do it, and I can't even follow it. And, the next night they're coming in with whatever, you know, they've learned and done. Uh, so it's a very collaborative uh, group 
Mm-hmm. I think it's a very welcoming group um, because everybody starts out as a beginner at some point in time. Um, and we all know what it's like to be the new kid on the block. And usually in my workshops, it's, it's half people that have been there before and half people that are new to it. And that's always great. Because yeah, inevitably, um, the, you know, the first critique, somebody that's never been to North Dakota before will bring in an image and people that have been there three times ago. Bam! Never saw that. Um, and that's great. Yeah. Um, and we all learn from each other. You know, you may not know everything about a digital camera, but you may be a physician or you may be uh, an engineer. You may be, your expertise may be something else that you look at this retired steel mill in a certain way. You know, when when I do a workshop in Alabama at the, the Sloss Furnace, I had the guy that worked for Pittsburgh Steel. Let me tell you, he could tell all of us a lot about what was going on and what things were used for and how it worked. And, you know, the more you know about a place, the more you can photograph. Yeah, that does. I think it gives you a good background to do a little bit of... Again, for me, it's that history piece. Study the history, know what you're looking at, you see more deeply. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, you've shared a lot of wonderful information, Telma. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really exciting and I don't even know which workshop I would sign up for if I could I wish I could take all of them um, <laughs> well we'd love to have you in any of them yeah so next co- coming up you've got the North Dakota and then I believe North Dakota is in 10 days and then Erie Canal then the Olson House is September 10th to 15th uh, and there's the and that's run through main media workshops that's not run through me Okay, that's uh, and they're still on your website as such. Yeah, it, it's it, you have to register through them, but there's still room. I know there's still room in that one. So if people would like the opportunity, we'll be photographing in the Olson House for two days, and then there is Montpelier, which is Henry Knox, who was George Washington's Secretary of War, retired, married a woman, and retired to Maine, and they built a house called Montpelier, hmm. and. This is a re, um, they lived in, he died about 1819. The family lived in until about 1860 when it became very decrepit and it was torn down. Um, and then the, the AR maybe rebuilt it. So what we'll be photographing in is a rebuilt version of Henry Knox's house, but it's a classic early 19th century building. It's actually got a, the entryway is an oval room, like the Oval Office. Oh, wow. Uh, it's got a cellar store. It's got some neat staircases and neat light coming in these huge windows. Right. Again, it's about the light and sense of space. Right. And then we'll be photographing in a, 19, a church that was built in 1820. Oh. It still has the box pews. It's still being used as a church today. Um, so, so it'll be an opportunity, really, to look at three types of 19th century architecture: the vernacular, uh, the Olson House, the um, formal of Montpelier, the rebuilt Montpelier, and then the religious yeah. of the night uh, of the 1820 church. Um, and again, it's all about light and space and shape and texture and structure. 
all about the spirit of the structure. So there is room. They do. There is room in that workshop, and they are still taking people to sign up for that one. Right. And then the Erie Canal workshop is the last week of September. And then I'm taking a group to China uh, the last two weeks of October. Oh, wonderful. So what will you be photographing in China as such? In China, we're going to be in, in the Guilin area. We're going to, unlike many, photo, this is not a photographic tour. Okay. Uh, we are going to be staying in a non-tourist area. We'll be photographing there about seven or eight World Heritage sites within an hour of Guilin. World Heritage or special national heritage sites to China. Mm-hmm. And Guilin is the classic picture. If you've seen almost any paintings of China with the, the steep snow cone-like hills, Right. That's the Guilin area. So we will we will visit those parks. We will work at photographer speed, and every photographer will have a translator with them. Oh. So when we go to a location, and, and many of the locations are huge parks, you'll be able to spend three or four hours. And if you really like it, you'll be able to call me and say, Tillman, I'm going to stay here and photograph till dark, because you'll have somebody with you that can get you in a cab and get you back to the hotel in time for dinner. That's uh, so, it, so, and you'll have the opportunity to go back. We've built in some days where there's nothing scheduled, and you can go back to a particular park or to a particular town uh, because everything's going to be within about an hour of downtown Guilin. Um So, again, it's that idea you mentioned earlier about going back and back to a location, and I think that's where really good images come from. Mm-hmm. is going back and seeing it again, particularly after you've looked at your work. The beauty of the digital work is to be able to pull it, up, pull it up, look at it, see what you got, see what you missed, and then go back. And so we'll have 10 days in Guilin to um, experience Guilin, to, to, not, to not be on the tourist trade, right. but to be, we, we're actually living near the university, Gangshi University, which is in that area of town. So, We'll be eating wonderful food every day. Uh, You'll have a translator with you. So you can, you know, if if you're into street photography, you can go walk along the streets and do street photography. We'll go to some some parks. We'll go to some temples. We'll go to some markets. We'll go to the Longji Rice Terraces, which are the famous rice terraces carved hundreds of years ago out of the sides of the mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll go take a riverboat trip down the Lee River. Uh, and photograph down the Lee River and then come back by bus the next day. So I, I'm very excited about it. Uh, I think it'll be a great trip. That sounds fabulous, just from the yeah. whole experience. And to have, like you said, yeah. each person having their own translator right by your side. Yep. Wonderful. That, you know, that, that'll be a unique perspective for it. Mm-hmm. Very much so. So... All of my workshops are geared around this idea of going back and looking again, seeing again. What did I miss the first time? What can I get the second time? Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Okay. Wonderful. So thank you very much, Tillman, for your time today. I really appreciate it. If you want to visit Tillman's website, it's Tillman Crane, and that's with a C, C-R-A-N-E dot com. And one last thing, when will you be putting up, uh, work for us working stiffs, um, when will you be putting up the 2018 workshops so if people need to 
plan ahead and request we hope them to, off. Yeah, we hope to have that up in September or October. We've got some really neat things scheduled uh, that we're working on putting a schedule together. Uh, I do know North Dakota Workshop will be over the 4th of July week, and mm-hmm. we've got some other things that we're cooking on. So we're real excited about next year also. Great. Thank you very much, Oh, we, we're doing yeah. that. And we're going to, we are going to, I do know we're going to Tuscany in October. Oh, Tuscany in October. A week in Tuscany. Yep. Wow. So, the if week. you've ever wanted to go to Tus- Tuscany, keep your eyes open. We'll have that workshop listed. And that's a small, that's limited to a fairly small group. I think it's six or ten people at most. Ooh, nice. Um, and we'll be staying in a Tuscan Renaissance Center, which will be great. Right. Good food, good wine, great location. <laughs> I was just thinking of the food now. I was like, food, location, uh, fall color probably at that time of year, I would imagine. Yep, I hope so. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you again so much, Tillman, for your time today. You bet, April. Good luck. Thank you. All right, take care.